Ah, this song takes me back. Takes me back to my youth, my teen angst days. Yeah. This is actually, this show, this is the Lincoln Park show, obviously, since you're checking this out. uh, This is a little Lincoln Park here. This is from the 2015 Rock on the Range that I got a chance to see them at. I was at this show, and it was broadcast here on Access TV, so shout out to them. Hi, everybody. Uh, Check Your Brain Podcast. Tony Mazur here with you. And this is a cool interview because if you're checking it out, this is a little bit about the history of Lincoln Park. It's not a biography on the band from, you know, sperm to the present, but (laughs) it is about the beginning of the band, which was called Zero at the time. Then they were thinking of going as hybrid theory because that's what the band was. It was a hybrid of genres that made them up. And they ended up uh, choosing Lincoln Park, which uh, he mentions in the book. But it, Lincoln Park, like every town, has a Lincoln Park, and this one happened to be around uh, in Santa Monica. And why was it Lincoln Park? I, from what I looked it up, I guess it was because it was easy enough to put that on as a website in those days, back in like ninety nine, two thousand. So uh, kind of fit them a little bit. But I got a chance to talk to the guy who discovered them. The guy who gave him their first big break, and it's a guy named Jeff Blue. Jeff Blue is a songwriter. He's a lawyer. He was a, he did a little bit of acting as well, but he was also a record label guy. He was with Zamba Records, Zamba Music, I should say, and it uh, he gave them their first break. He's the first guy to truly believe in this band, and they helped discover Chester Bennington. And uh, the marriage between him and Mike Shinoda musically was just, you know, for some people, especially millennials and people my age, is Lennon-McCartney-esque. So uh, they were a very popular band. Obviously, Chester passing away, uh, dying of uh, suicide back in 2017, kind of put the sad postscript on the band. But you want to talk about a band when, you know, in the early 2000s and the post 9-11 era. This band was everywhere. It was on every radio station. So we get into talking about that band and those beginnings. And it was a really cool conversation with Jeff. And uh, go check out his book. It's called One Step Closer from Zero to Number One. Zero being the name of the band, X-E-R-O. So go check that out. Here is my conversation on the beginnings of Linkin Park with Jeff Blue. Well, what's really cool, man, is that I, you know, I'm a, I don't know if you know my background at all, but like I did Corn, Limp Biscuit, Lincoln Park, all these hard rock bands. Uh, but I also did Daniel Powder, Had a Bad Day, The Last mm-hmm. Good Night, Pictures of You. I wrote that. I did Macy Gray, you know, a lot of the shit you play. And I'm a huge soft rock fan, like insane soft rock fan. So when I was writing the book, um, everything I did was I could only listen to soft rock and I have a playlist of about 1400 songs that that's was constantly on repeat. And I just wrote a horror movie, uh, screenplay. And all I listened to was, uh, <laughs> was soft, like exactly what your playlist is. Well, you know, you, what's know? In, you know, what's interesting about that is when you talk about like hooks, like we kind of took it for granted and I'm, you know, I'm 32 or, or so I was kind of raised with like classic rock and my mom liked a little bit of right. disco and everything. And, you know, I hear like Casey and the Sunshine Band and I'm like, eh, whatever. But then you realize that they were influenced by somebody who was also influenced by somebody. So you're getting that influence. And I remember hearing an interview with Dave Grohl and he said that like, he'll go back and listen to Captain and Tennille. And people start oh, laughing. Oh, Captain Teal's on. I have like three. Yeah, dude, I go back. I think uh, Leah's waiting on uh, to be allowed in there too. You want to let her in? Yes. There we go. You know who I go to? England Dan and John Ford Coley. Love Brad. them. See, that, I'm telling you, man. It's like, and in fact, when I was, uh, I did that. I don't know if you know the pictures of you song mm-hmm. that I wrote. Do you know that, or are you just saying? Oh, it? sure do. Okay, yeah. So, um, I was on the phone with Richard Marks. Uh, and I was like, dude, we got to co-write because I'm just a fan of that. But like, I take it way back, man. Like, you know, uh, America, all that kind of stuff. Like, you know, um, just jigsaw. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, the shit that you hear on 
the the older older stations you know but they're still and that we could even discuss which i think is really interesting and i tell all bands is leon yeah yeah well, yeah I'm here, I'm here now oh hey leah so we right. were just discussing this and what i tell every band even though it's a hard rock band i'm like listen to all genres you know of everything because a hit song is a hit song is a hit song if you're doing hard rock all you're really doing if you can take a great hook and a melody a great song would be able to play really chill acoustically in a ballad and then also in an aggressive song because with hard rock you're ba- in a, a hit song in hard rock you're basically adding heavier tones heavier drums uh more guitar tone and you know uh, more dynamic in the vocal going from you know soft to heavy and screaming so it's like that's kind of what lincoln park was in lincoln park believe it or not brad uh i worked for jive records actually we can totally talk about this i worked for jive which uh you know zomba publishing and jive records and it was backstreet boys mm-hmm. and they were constantly playing and in my book i referenced it all the time and basically in essence if you take any structure of any great song like a, a lincoln park song and they're very well structured in short it's basically the same formula as a great backstreet boys song or any song because it just it hits you it's hook 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 and then you're out and you want you're left wanting more it's that it's that roots of whatever art you have it's the roots that you have going to it's going back to the fundamentals it's like that in any it's like it in sports it's like that in so i i do a little stand-up too and doug stanhope is one of the best stand-up comedians it's like he's the comedian's comedian and he was t- telling a story where he'll call people and say, I'm just trying to think of a knock-knock joke. It's like, you're one of the best stand-ups of all time, but you're trying to write a funny knock-knock joke. And you realize, wait a second, that's the, that's the building blocks. That's the, fu- the foundation to something like stand-up comedy. So when you go back in time, it's kind of like even a, a basketball player has to learn to dribble. You could be Michael Jordan, you could be LeBron James, but you have to dribble the ball. You have to play defense. You have to figure that out. So when you're in... You know, before you get to intricate levels of of riffs and you know time signatures like Tool and maybe Mr. Bungle or Primus, you got to know the roots to simple chord play, and that's right. kind of what ends up happening is that when you go back in those days where you do listen to the John Ford Coleys and England Dans and the you know the Poco or something like that. Oh yeah. You, yep. you go okay it seems like it's just oh it's lame music this is what I listen to in the car when my mom would drive me around to soccer practice and then you go well, wait a second that is part of the roots of what we wanted to do and that's where you were talking about with Lincoln Park that who had to influence Lincoln Park and then who influenced the people who influenced Lincoln Park? And then well, that was the interesting thing is that you know the guys all had this hip hop influence and whatnot. But Brad and I would literally sit there and go, "How cheesy is Backstreet Boys?" And we're like, "You know what? It's really not. It's nope. great songwriting." And I mean, maybe we could save all of this conversation for the interview. I don't know if oh, this is valid. Oh, I'm t- I'm taping it right now. Yeah, oh, you are. <laughs> okay. We, we've been loading. I'm like Mark Marin, where I just hit play and then we'll figure out a nice place to start. But no, this has actually been great conversation too that I'm going to include. Well, we can we can do it a little bit better because I cuss and I got to let my dog out and I have a bad feeling he's going to want. He's looking at me right now. He goes, "I'm going to want to go in and out of the front and the back." So well, no, what I'm you, no, you can curse. I'll just I'll edit it. It's no problem. We could do, okay. we can have a good conversation and then it's going to be fully uncensored on a podcast when it comes out. So okay, yeah, and you, it's you all is curse. it going video too or no? No, just uh, just the audio right now. Okay, cool. Cause see, Leah, now now I looked I look like shit. I, I saw myself the other, <laughs> the other thing. I looked. I had partied the night but before. Jeff, the, was the over. lighting I got, like, right now is the lighting right now is good on you. I know. I turned the freaking camera around, and I looked like I, I got punched in the face. I did ten rounds with Mike Tyson. Hold on one sec. And then my lighting looks looks terrible because it's uh it's currently two o'clock. It's in Akron, Ohio, and it's about twenty five degrees in January. So. Which means this uh, actually looks really good for Akron, Ohio. <laughs> yeah, actually, I, I like Cleveland, Ohio. I, I almost bought a place out there. Um, where else? I like, and then Macy Gray, I, I discovered she was from Canton. Mm-hmm. Yep, just I down the road. I having to go out there. But then I also um, I saw Machine Gun Kelly for the first time in Cleveland and tried to sign him in 2009, um, which my label didn't want to sign back then. Big mistake. Yeah, so. I, would, I would say... <laughs> I would say yeah, that was Atlantic. <laughs> We're not talking about labels, but yeah. So, um, yeah. So let, let me know when you want to. Well, let's, I mean, started. let's do it. Cause the, I mean, the book is called one step closer from zero to number one. And 
it's the basically you're responsible. Now, obviously, Lincoln Park is responsible for Lincoln Park, right. but you're responsible for giving them that nudge from being obscure Los Angeles-based band playing the Whiskey A Go Go in a couple of different places and so many auditions to oh hey they're the biggest selling rock act of the 21st century. Yeah, absolutely. So basically, what my job is as an A and R person or a developer is to go out and discover and develop things that I believe in. And I think that comes down to anything in life, like feeling an authenticity to an artist. And, you know, as an A&R person, it stands for artists and repertoire. We're basically blessed to be the vehicle that enables the artist to communicate their vision to the world. And you've got to be inspired by that. And I think that's what, you know, great music does. It, it either can make you feel a certain way or make you forget about how you're feeling. And when you, so a few months ago, Eddie Van Halen passed away and it was really sad, a lot of tributes and you start getting the background of another band from LA from, you know, uh, Pasadena, which was Van Halen. And there was no doubt that Eddie Van Halen had the, you know, he was one of the great guitarists of all time. You knew that at the time, right. but finding the right front man and a lot of like all the tributes and they were saying Eddie was great but at the beginning people were unsure of David Lee Roth they didn't know if he was the guy they didn't know if he had it as they knew he he had a personality but is this if we want this to be the biggest band in the world is he the right lead singer for it and sometimes it takes a lot of trial and error and like you were like you mentioned in the book about the beginnings of how the band started and i i want to get to that too because it really started with an internship just like just like most jobs like in the real world it starts with an internship and that's where lincoln park essentially began but how was it so you're working for labels and you know how many how many burned cds and tapes you get and you're like oh hey you got to listen to my band you got to listen to this and you go okay and you listen to it it's like yeah it sounds like you know 72 other acts that are on the radio right now right what was it that in the in the era of new metal as they called it as they still call it in the era of that active rock the post grunge what stood out when you first heard uh, a, a band like Linkin Park and getting back to Van Halen that it had to sound something different, but something familiar to an audience of that time. Well, there was a couple differences um, and we can move back a little earlier about how that all happened. But the thing that stood out differently was there was a rapper and a vocalist and the initial, you know, with, with Chester and Mike, you know, Chester was the second vocalist. And that's, I know what you're referencing with Van Halen you know, finding the right vocalist. But what made Linkin Park different to me was that you had a very cinematic rapper who wasn't just rapping about, you know, how much he hates his mom and his parents suck. Um, they were rapping about overcoming adversity and, you know, strength and belief in oneself. And you had a vocalist that was beautiful singing these amazing melodies rather than just screaming. And what Chester had was the ability to almost sing R&B-ish melodies and go from really soft and beautiful to insane, barbaric, you know, growling, which was still beautiful in its own sense. And you got the message across and they're not, they're singing about things that were inspiring and actually ended up saving so many people's lives. I, I can't even tell you how many um, people every day, probably about 10, 10 times a day, I get a text message or Instagram post saying like, this band saved my life. Thank you. And again, I was just a, a vehicle to enable this, and to reach all these millions of people. Um, but back to your original question, um, Brad was my intern. And he, in fact, was in a class that I was teaching at UCLA and ended up uh, asking to be my intern and was very confident. He was a very confident young kid. And I believe he was 19, 20 years old and came to my office and looked at my plaques. I had corn and Limp Bizkit. And he's like, I'm going to have a band that's better than that. And I was just like, I'm sitting there going like, wow, this kid has balls, you know, the size of, you know, Mount Rushmore. And so I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm like, okay, you know what? I want somebody that's, that has that type of belief and that confidence. And he brought me uh, his original demo tape and didn't tell me it was him. And there was something there. It was definitely not great, but there was some, uh, there was, it was authentic and it was unique in a way that you had, uh, well thought out songs, very cinematic. Mike, Mike Shinoda is 
I urge people to go and listen to his lyrics because they're very cinematic. I noticed a lot of like rain dropping references and concrete fences. And I instantly, because I'm a writer, was drawn into that. And then to the, the structure again was just, you know, it was very powerful. And, uh, and Brad's guitar playing was unique too. So uh, when we were able to find Chester, he was the missing element that really took this band, you know, from zero to number one. And Chester was not from L.A. He's from Arizona and came from a really, really troubled life. And uh, basically, from what I was reading about in, in his biography, it seemed like he lived like three lifetimes at that by that point, by the time he joined Lincoln Park and drug use, uh, bad home life, everything. And, you know, he's just working part time jobs and just uh, trying to figure it out. And you guys find this guy. And for someone like Chester, who and obviously, in, you know, towards the end of his life and everything, he just lived a troubled life the whole time. But sadly, and it's this bittersweet pill that you have, is that great art comes from great torture. And it's that, in, in comedy, it's that tears of a clown. And you have a lot of, uh, and, and there's so many, whether it's a musician or a comedian that have committed suicide or overdosed or fallen into these uh, hardships and everything. But when you, because I remember when you would, I was 13 when Linkin Park hit. And so that's the age of, like, I, my parents, you know, I know more than them. They're a bunch of dumbasses. Uh, you know, uh, my teachers are morons. Uh, I, you know, I hate my friends. They're not, they're not real friends. They're backstabbing. So I, I was of the age where you'd listen to Linkin Park and you hear that, that passion. Not, I don't want to say rage, but it's passion. And it hit and it clicked so quickly. And you just, you audition, found Chester, and it just, it was the, per, it really was the perfect marriage for a band like that. Yeah, it, it was crazy. Um, we had showcased 44 times, and th this is a lot of what the book's about. 44 times. I don't know if anybody could uh, imagine sitting in front of somebody being judged 44 times and getting told no. Mm -hmm. And I was there. So I was, I was the person that was getting told no, and then I had to tell the band, no, they didn't like it. For this reason, that reason, the other. And that also fueled the message about overcoming adversity with the guys um, and faith in oneself. And I think that, I mean, that's like a life lesson. You know, you've, we're going to be told through our lives, you know, thousands of times, no, you're not good enough. You're not good enough. And 99% of us will go, you know what, maybe I'm not, I'm going to try something else in my life. Um, it's that 1% uh, that believes in themselves enough to go, you know what, screw this. We believe in it. We're going to forge ahead and we're going to get stronger. And the one great thing about the guys was that for the most part, they listened and we, we would basically go, okay, they're wrong. We're going to stick with this and make our own record or make the band's record. But we, you know, we always adapted and we learned from trial and error. And these, I mean, that's how these guys went from, never playing a, a really a show for artists. I mean, they maybe played like five shows or for uh, an audience to literally go in and play in arenas. I mean, they were that good and it was that instantaneous and every record label passed. Even our own record label was like, you know, this isn't good enough until the album was actually finished and it was played for a couple of radio stations and people went, wow, this, this is going to connect immediately. You're obviously the unsung hero of Linkin Park, but who was it that you're, because I'm sure you're just pounding the doors and trying to find, like, look, you got to believe in this band. Who, was there somebody or a group or somebody that you truly convinced and that they would listen to like, okay, maybe it needs a little polishing, but this band has something because I'm sure there were a lot of bands that at that time in the late nineties and right around 2000, that a lot of bands probably did have that post grunge sound or they, they sounded generic and they wanted to sound like the, whatever was popular, the kid rocks, the limp biscuits, the corns, the deftones at the time. And was there, who was it that really, other than yourself, of course, to help nudge them and just to say, look, this band is, this band's a lot different. Just trust me on this one. Well, I got to give a shout out to my boss, Richard Blackstone at Zomba Publishing, who allowed me to do it. And he believed in them and allowed me to work with these guys for three years with no with no income from them. Um, and when I mean, again, they were passed by every record label. And so I had Macy Gray blowing up and I got offers to go move from publishing to do A&R and all the record labels like 
we want to give you a job, you know, as an A&R executive, but we really don't want the band. You're, you're not going to be able to bring the band along until there was one guy named Joe McEwen who ironically signed artists like Paula Cole and Wilco. And he sat down and mind you, we had showcased for Warner brothers three times for uh, a man that became my boss when we were making the record. And if you read the book, it was a pretty traumatic situation. So we showcased three times for Warner Brothers being told no for a legendary A&R person, a producer, Grammy award winning producer who had done Sublime and all these amazing other artists. So we were rejected three times by Warner. And then I had a fortuitous meeting with a man named Joe McEwen in New York, who was the head of A&R at the time and listened to the demo and was like, wow, I love these transitions. And he instantaneously got the the cinematic references and the intelligence behind the band. And he was the only one. I'm literally the only person. And he goes, you know, I like it. Came out to see a showcase. And I go, hey, this has got to be part of me coming to do A&R at Warner Brothers. I've got to bring this band. And he's like, let's do it. So one out of, I mean, I can't tell you 50 A&R executives. One person, Joe McEwen. So that, because in those days, a lot of that, a lot of that music was influenced by the Run DMC, Aerosmith era, the Public Enemy, and Anthrax. And uh, I remember when I first heard Lincoln Park, and because which is funny because when I was on the school bus, the story of how I discovered Lincoln Park uh, was I was on the school bus. I was in eighth grade, and I had a friend of mine says, uh, "Oh, hey, do you like Lincoln Park?" And I'm thinking he's talking about an actual park because right. every city in America seems to have a Lincoln Park. So that's what I think he's talking about. I'm like, yeah, my grandma took me there growing up. We went swimming. Uh, right, like, exactly. So, no, 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 it's a band. So a lot of people were really introduced to Lincoln Park because of In the End. But I was introduced by One Step Closer, which was just yeah. that, that may as well with the shut up, <laughs> shut up when I'm talking to you part may as well have been pornography to me at that time because it was right. it was exactly what a lot of people needed. And that that kind of anger coming out of the 90s, especially if you're an adolescent kid. And it, so but when I first heard Lincoln Park, it wasn't so much the the rap rock influence like the fusion hybrid theory, but the I, I, I heard a lot more melodic stuff. Like I compared it to Faith No More because as soon as oh, I heard it, yeah. I'm thinking I'm like this Chester Bennington. I mean, like whatever whoever this guy is, he's like Mike Patton because he he's, has different octaves, and then he's screaming. And then he's going. Then he takes a breath and he's singing and he's hitting the notes and he has like perfect pitch. It just was. It clicked and it hit so hard at the time. But uh, yeah, all those influences. It really seemed that it wasn't just like one band that was just the main one. It sounded like it's so many different things went into that. Hence that hybrid theory. It sounded like. Yeah, I mean, and he, it's funny because you reference uh, Faith No More. That's ex I remember listening to In the End with the piano line, and I'm like, I told Mike, you go, you must listen to Faith No More. And I re don't think he had ever really, you know, heard of him. Or may, you know, it reminded me of Faith No More as well. And the great thing, and that's what I couldn't understand. These record labels were like, oh, this sounds like every other band. I'm like, this doesn't sound like any other band. They're like, oh, you've already got Corn, you've got Limp Bizkit, you've got, you know, all these other artists. To me, it was a little bit of Rage Against the Machine. And that's what, you know, the um, One Step Closer reminded me of, but without the, you know, the F-bombs in it. And it communicated the same vibe in a little bit more pop-sensical radio format. And that's when I was like, this is going to be our first single. That, that had to be the first single because that was going to take the credibility because they had pop elements, they had R&B elements, they had hip-hop, but the one thing that was going to grab your attention was you know the, the hook you know shut up when i'm talking to you but the song as a whole from the guitar riff to the you know broke down beat in the beginning the filtered beat and the explosion that's an instant instantaneous ear grabber and uh you know from top to top to bottom and one of the things that you know we're, ta we're talking about uh pop and, and hit music the one thing that makes popular songs great with those radio edits is that every single second has to be worthwhile. You know, if back in the day, if you had a long intro, you know, the radio person would be talking over it. And we were coming, this was 2000, we're coming into an age where you were gonna, you were gonna have five to 10 seconds to listen to a song and decide if you wanted to skip it. So 
I was in you know, and the band was a complete uh, agreement. We had to start boom, right from, you know, 0.001 on the second bar to hit, you know, that hook because we only had a certain amount of time to actually have somebody interested. And that's what made these songs so great. There was no filler. I noticed that at the be- in the 2000s, I'm not sure if it's like that nowadays, especially in the, the YouTube SoundCloud generation, but when you had bands that, when they began, they sounded, they were crossover bands. So when Linkin Park, in the end, you could hear that on your local Kiss station, you can hear it on your rock station, and then in a couple of years, you'll hear it on your Bob FM or Jack FM or something. Mm-hmm. So it, it kind of fit. And when you there's there is a little bit of trepidation as a rock fan, and you don't want to hear a, a band that's sold out. And it seemed like in the two thousands that it was you would have one crossover hit, but it was like trying to explain to the audience that hey, look, you know th- this pretty is pretty uh, good for us and the bank account and everything. But hey, we also have a couple other things you'll really like if you listen to your rock station because I like for example Nickelback was a band that. You know, at the time when they first hit and How You Remind Me was a big crossover hit, but there were some good songs like The State and um, It Too Bad and a couple of other songs that uh, really, like Never Again was another good one that you would hear on rock radio and like, wait, that's the same band. And other bands like Daughtry, I think, did it uh, a few years later. But Linkin Park was one of those where it's it, it, it basically what it sounded to me is you're not a fan of In the End. OK, but we have something you might really like on this station. Right. And what was, okay, I really need to define what made Linkin Park an additional long mainstay in in music outside of, you know, the great songwriting. They were, A, they did no drugs. They, not that other, other artists did, but they were extremely business and uh, visionary minded. They were looking to the audience, to how it was going to affect them. And one of the main issues and we had a lot of debates over this was which singles to go out with and uh the band did not want to go out with in the end and it was a, it, i discussed it in in uh the book so we went we went out with you know one step closer than crawling and we wanted we knew it was crazy because in the end was starting to get played you know the the rock stations were uh at night were playing rock you know the hard rock music and then there were the overnight uh, DJs would, uh, you know, leave the CD in the player, you know, and uh, people were starting to listen to in the end, like some of the DJs were like, oh, this is really good. And they started, you know, taking a life on its own. And the band really wanted to go out with this song called Points of Authority, which is actually one of my favorite songs in the album. And it was, that's like my ultimate workout song. I just listened um, to it a again, half hour. I was at the gym, I was finishing up and I'm like, look, I got, I got this interview in about a half hour and I need something to really crank the workout up. And I put on my YouTube music and points of authority is the first thing that came up on my shuffle. I'm like, yeah, this, this will get me through it. And that's something that Mike Shinoda took a riff of Brad's, cut it up. And I mean, the guy was, a, Mike was a genius. So he really made that song amazing. And I love that song, but it was the it was the third single and traditionally yeah you want to you we the band really wanted to keep that rock credibility and they didn't want to go uh you know pop and they thought it was going to hurt their um their core audience you know uh, you guys have sold out but it didn't and it what it did was it broadened the reach of their audience and also turned on people you know to the hip-hop side as well which obviously, you know, when they ended up working with Jay-Z and and it just, this band transcended every genre. And it was because they were cognizant of how to treat every uh, like demographic of their fan base and go out and introduce them to it in a credible form. They didn't lose their rock uh, fan base. They didn't lose the pop fan base and they gained a hip hop fan base. I mean, you can't do better than that, you know? And, And the band was aware of that. They and, seem, uh, yeah. they really seem like at the time the first massive newer rock band that hit in the internet age, because I recall it, it was two thousand one. You know, it was, it was right around nine eleven, and I didn't get Hybrid Theory right away. But I had a friend of mine who burned me like a, a mix of songs from around that time, and I remember it was like, I think it was like a, a Weezer's Green album was on there, a couple of songs, right. uh, uh, a couple of Disturbed songs from the Sickness. 
and I think Alien Ant Farm was on there as well, uh, Sum 41. But then it was, I remember the lead track on there was Crawling on this this mix CD. And it seemed to me that for that stretch, especially with that album, it really was like they were like the internet band that, yes, you can hear them on the radio, but if you went on the Napsters and the LimeWires and the WinMX file sharing services, that they were always there too. Uh, obviously not the best thing for the band, but it seemed like that was like the first band of the new generation, the new uh, the new millennium that really had that massive impact on this newer generation that now we call millennials. Right, and... and- if you l- listen to what you just said about all the artists on there, every one of those artists, you can pinpoint one specific thing. And Dave Draymond is amazing. He had that, you know, wah, you know, that, that whole identity there, but, and he's also got, you know, an amazing voice in, in different uh, genres as well. But the one thing that Lincoln Park had, and you have Alien Ant Farm, which everybody associates with, you know, the cover song for the most part, the, you know, the Michael Jackson, um, track and every artist in there it seemed like they had one one kind of focused line lincoln blended a lot of different genres and again i think that's why and it also had more of a message and you know in for example when you're talking about crawling i mean that's a very very deep song and that really hit a lot of people not in in anger or rage it just made them feel like they belong and that there's people out there that are lost and, you know, depressed and, and stressed out and and confused. And it allowed and that's what great music does. It allows you to feel like you belong. And I think that's the one thing that Linkin Park did better than almost every other artist out there in that genre. For sure. It made you feel like you weren't alone. And that's, you know, I write in my book. That's why I got involved in music. You know, I had a, I had a pretty traumatic childhood as well. And music made me feel whatever type it was from rock to hip hop to pop that I belong. There was there was uh, in every great song, there's an element of communication that really reaches us and makes me us feel we're not outsiders. Because in general, in life, 99 percent of us are outsiders. You know, I know I am. So what, what was Chester like dealing with the the success where somebody where he's he's a kid from Phoenix, Arizona and with his home life and all of a sudden it's 2001, 2002, and this this album, everybody has it in their cars. Everybody is playing it. It's on every radio station. And it did he handle the success well for somebody who had had the uh, addiction problems, or was he pretty even keeled during that time? Well, yeah, you know, I think it's like it's like any artist. Um, you know, Chester, when I met him, was just. Uh, and, and again, it's in my book, but he's not the guy that I thought I was going to be meeting. It, you know, he, he wasn't, I was expecting, because again, when I first met Chester, I heard a voice first. And I didn't see a photograph. And I was expecting to meet this guy that was like 6'4", blonde hair, pulled back in a ponytail, you know, combat boots and, you know, a t-shirt rolled up with the, you know, the sleeves and super buff. And that wasn't him at all. And Chester was a very innocent uh, appearing very sensitive person whose voice really carried so much depth and emotion yet you could you could see the the demons inside you know um and when yeah success hit uh just like anybody there's all you know there's a lot of things being thrown at you i think he dealt with it very very well considering um you know his past and um you know it, anything in life when even when i when i started my job and it went from you know having zero hits to having big hits we all changed a little bit but chester has in my opinion remained one of the most sweet and sincere people i've ever met in my life how is his relationship with mike where they're two guys that they kind of have different duties but they they worked well so well as a as a duo in that group and of course you know mike ends up doing fort minor and chester had some solo stuff and he went on to doing stp but how was their relationship during that time was there a feeling of one you know chester has too many vocals in this or was it no this is a team effort well um, during the record when we we're making the record and it goes back to the fact that um you know i was talking about this guy joe McEwen, who had hired me and was a big fan of the band and by the time i was getting out of my contract um, it took about nine months 
we had a new boss who was in charge of our album. And that was the guy that passed in the band three times. So um, he wasn't a fan of the rapping and that put some strain on it. But Cheshire was very, very supportive of everything. And I was put in a very difficult position um, trying to balance the needs of my boss who was saying we we're going to get dropped and that I was going to lose my job um, and trying to keep the band happy and, and the vision intact. And I think um, the, that tension forced the band to really examine the songwriting and give a very fair and even balance to uh, the chemistry between Mike and Chester. Um, I know Chester was, uh, especially with um, Crawling, was very concerned that Mike didn't have enough of a, a position in that song. Other than, obviously, Mike wrote a huge amount of it, but um, the balance of you know uh, rap to vocals. Um, so overall, I think they dealt with it amazingly well, and it really uh, worked to serve building their chemistry. And then after, so Hybrid Theory just takes off, and it just seemed like every song in that album was on these uh, active rock stations and then the crossover hits and everything. So now you're in 2002. Uh, a couple of the guys end up uh, doing some stuff with the executioners. I remember. And uh, then reanimation comes out. Who's, was that Mike's idea? Was that his turntable background? That yeah. Mike had always, Mike had always uh, envisioned that. And um, you know, it was a great idea. And you know, people started really uh, getting interested in, in the band. And so, that was really Mike leading that, that, uh, that surge. And he was just, you know, sending me, um, stuff to approve, you know, who, who was going to be remixing. Yeah. And that was cause you think about, think about how big this band was that, uh, Rage Against the Machine, they have this lasting power and they had three albums. They had three albums and a cover album. Right. And Guns N' Roses has this massive, massive uh, fan base. Three albums and a covers album, basically. So by the time Linkin Park is the biggest band on the planet in the early to mid-2000s, in the aughts, and really they had two albums, and then they had a live album, then they had, and they had two remix albums after that with the one with Jay-Z and the live in Texas. Right. And it just, that's that lasting power and that popularity of a band that they can experiment with that with even some of their biggest hits. Because there's a lot of times where you have a live album and a band's like, eh, you know, may, may not be the biggest fan of their version of the the album, uh, the live track. But that's how popular this band was, is that they had two albums and they can mix them off with two more albums. Right. And the one thing I always felt about Lincoln, and I I felt they were more like a, an artist as a whole, like a U2. You know, U2 went off and they, they were, Lincoln Park was always experimenting with sound and they kept the core sound, but they developed and they experimented and they tried out things. Um, you know, even like a Madonna goes through all those changes in her sound or Rolling Stones. Um, I think Lincoln Park, again, all these artists we're talking about have vision and Lincoln Park had vision, which is, um, you know, a couple of the artists, like you mentioned, like GNR, Lincoln Park really, for the most part, didn't have any drug or alcohol issues. And it allowed them to focus on looking towards the future and to building the brand of Lincoln Park. And they were very, very conscientious of what they would discuss in interviews, what they would focus on and what they were about. And um, ironically, when I was writing my or after I wrote my book, I went back and somebody mentioned to me like, you know, their favorite book is The Dirt, but this is the opposite. I had nothing, you know, and I was with, uh, I discovered this guy, DJ Ashba, who was in Guns N' Roses and worked with Motley Crue and all this amazing guitar player. And we were talking and we were at a party. I'm like, I can't seem to find any stories that are like sex, drugs and rock and roll really about the band because that's not what they were about. They were about music and authenticity. And that's what I wrote about it. There's, you're not going to find, you know, any crazy drug stories, any crazy sex stories or, or anything like that. The great thing about this story is it's inspirational in the fact that these people had a message they were authentic they were about the music and they wanted to reach people and they were told no thousands of times and still forged ahead and i think that's what really makes any great executive any great leader 
uh, you know, regardless of the music business, but these guys were leaders in their field in music and more. I only saw Linkin Park live one time, and it was actually at a festival, Rock on the Range. And oh, yeah. uh, it was 2015, and the one thing about seeing them live as opposed to a couple other bands that I've seen, I, you know, not to, not to name too many names, but from what I've heard, like, I've never seen System of a Down live, and I love System mm-hmm. of a Down. And Amazing, the, yeah. what I get from a lot of people is, Go ahead, but understand that they're li- it's hard to replicate. It's not really their fault, but it's hard to replicate that sound that they had on Mesmerize, Hypnotize, uh, you know, uh, Toxicity and all them, and that they were able to try to translate that and get that onto a live show. So I was interested to see a band that is, no pun intended, so meteoric and uh, arena, right. kind of that. They were really the arena rock band of the, uh, of the millennium generation. And I was interested to see how it was going to sound. And God, Chester, just his vocals. Like, I'm thinking, is he going to have to take a breath or something? And his vocals, and especially the scream, was just, it, it, because his scream was not, it's, it wasn't threatening. It wasn't like you're listening to, to Corey Taylor. And it wasn't like you were listening to, you know, Cannibal Corpse or something. But it was something where it, there, was, there was rawness, there was passion behind it. And it sounded great live too. So I was lucky to have gotten to see them a couple of years before, obviously the, you know, t- t- tragic ending with him. Right, and I write about it in my book, One Step Closer, that I had the the epiphany when I brought down Macy Gray. And hopefully, you know, your your listeners will remember Macy Gray um, to an audition where again every single record label passed <laughs> and. She, when Macy Gray, she brought in the artist in that she was working with and she wanted me to sign to a development deal. And so the artist got up on stage and auditioned before Lincoln Park, you know, it was in Lincoln Park's rehearsal place. And she started singing and then Brad got up and started playing this funky, like cool guitar riff. And, and then, you know, Rob got up and started playing drums and then Chester got up and oh my God, he started singing uh harmonies with her and i was i was sitting there with my jaw dropped open and it was beautiful i mean he was literally singing the sweetest r&b melody you could ever imagine and then he went into this heavy you know ripping you know not a scream but just like you said it was uh it was an authenticity he was expressing that emotion that was an r&b melody in a more energetic profound way that really ripped your soul and you know ripped into your soul and you felt it and i I literally was like, I was shaking all the hairs were standing up on my, my arm. And I, I took him aside after I'm like, dude, you, this is what we need on the album. Cause he didn't, he didn't quite have that, uh, that transition. I think that's what was missing with the earlier stuff when he got in the band, but it was that moment when Macy brought her, her R and B artist down that he jumped in. And I was just like, this is what we need to put on an album find this in you and then put this in with Mike. And that really was, you know, very shortly thereafter, we had a a record deal with Warner through Joe McEwen. So a hundred percent that, that energy that uh, Chester transmit, he can sell the entire message in that scream, which we shouldn't call a scream. We should call it an emotion. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, over time, uh, of course, you know, getting to know Chester he's, with his, uh, the troubled background and everything. And did, uh, you know, I, I got to ask, did you, were, were there any signs? Did you feel that this was not going to end the way that uh, you would, you know, that it was not going to be as peaceful and everything and how everything ended up in 2017? Were there signs? Did you have a feeling that that, troubled background was going to catch up to him at some point or did you feel that he had kind of conquered his demons for a while i mean i can only speak to the time that i spent with him which was in the beginning and we did have some profound discussions during the making of hybrid theory which was you know really uh in 2000 1999 2000 and we discussed uh some of our past because we had i had dealt with uh, suicide in my family uh twice and um, we discussed how things could look so amazing and be so incredible, yet you can feel a dark cloud over you. And I'll never forget that. We were in, we were in uh, Rosarita Beach, uh, Mexico, and 
you know, we were just coming off of making this album that was so exhausting and so stressful, but it was so beautiful. And we were sitting there going, hey, we're supposed to be enjoying this vacation. And we we're talking about some of the, the drama in his life and, and in my life. And I'm like, man, I go, we got to focus on the positive. Um, but I think that's with anybody. And I think, you know, everybody goes through those moments. Um, you know, I, I wasn't, you know, connected with him uh, towards the end. And I wish I could have been. And I'm sure a lot of other people wish they could have been. But I think it's really important to know uh, and to note that anybody could be going through that, you know, whether they look troubled or not, or they look like they have everything going on in their lives. That's amazing. Um, a lot of it is, you know, your past, it's genetic. It could be other situations in your life, uh, you know, any substances. It could be anything for any variety of different people. But just because people look like they've got it all made and they've got insane success and they've got tons of money, um, that doesn't mean people are happy inside. And, you know, we all put on, especially in, in this age of social media, which is just extremely profound statement you look at social media and you you can literally direct what you put out to an audience into your followers and look i'm happy 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 i've got all this but deep inside are we really happy you know yeah. and i think that's one thing that everybody has to uh listen to their friends about like if somebody comes to you and talks to you hey i'm having a hard time it may be hard for them to express themselves but we should always be aware of any type of sign and we uh, generally we aren't we're just like oh man you're good you've got this you got this you know um so i think that's that's part of the message in my book too is that even though we have everything we are struggling inside yeah and then especially you throw in a pandemic right now where artists yeah. who like to create can't create they can't go on the road they you know there's just so many times like i've had people say oh boy you've you probably have like a backlog of well, comedy material coming up right now i'm like no i've written maybe two jokes in a year because it's like <laughs> it, it's that creative process trying to get something going so it's uh, uh it's this is a tough time and i think in my opinion i think uh in this country we don't do as good enough of a job of spotlighting we've done a better job in, in recent years but we still need to do more work with mental mental health and mental health awareness uh be, and especially nowadays with people kind of locked in their homes they don't know what to do and, and understandably so and everything but it's a uh, yeah it, just a just a sad ending and it happened you know on the on the birthday of uh, Chris Cornell, who had passed, so right. I I was going to another one. He was going to be at Rock oh. on the Range, and it was uh, it was the next. I remember it was the day before we were going to Rock on the Range, and I'm on the treadmill. It's four o'clock in the morning. I lo I look at Twitter, and it just says "Rest in Peace, Chris Cornell." And the tributes, yeah. and the biggest tribute out there was uh, next to his daughter was Chester, and it really right. seemed to affect him that bad. Yeah. Um, again. Chris, one of the most uh, right up there with Freddie Mercury, you know, all time uh, voices. Um, yeah, it's again, we we never know how what, what anybody else is going through. And, you know, it could be, you know, looking at yourself in the past and going, hey, we I had this. I've got to achieve this again. I know I'm a big uh, person that I've got to do better this time. And you're, you're never really satisfied with, you know, uh, what you've achieved and you've got to do it again and again and again. And that alone could be an addiction to, and you know, and if you aren't happy with yourself, there, there's so many different things that uh, affect people in different ways. And again, it just goes to the fact that you never know who's hurting inside. Yeah, that's, uh, and again, Soundgarden or Audio Slave too, but, uh, but Soundgarden, Linkin Park, there's just some bands that you just said, and we mentioned Van Halen, just can't bring back. You can't bring back that sound. Like Allison Chains was able to make it work in a way where, granted, maybe there might be some diehard Allison Chains fans who are like, you know what? I don't even see them because since Lane's been gone. But William right. Duvall does a great job, and you realize that Jerry Cantrell did a lot of a lot of heavy lifting with that band too. Um, that it you know Lane's vocals were just outstanding, but you realize how many songs that Jerry was vocals on too. So it kind of works, and they're harmonies are really good but even with mike it's just that it's a band that just it, it can't be recreated it was it they were a great lincoln park was a great band for its time and i think the legacy will and, and you're obviously a huge part of their legacy and and how they got to this level and 
discovering them and figuring out that a band like this can really, whether you're in middle America, whether you're overseas, or whether you're in a big town, whether it's in a coastal town like in L.A. or New York, that it can affect anybody, and it really made that kind of impact, and it just can't be re- recreated. No, it, it can't, and again, it, w- it was it was a blessing, and the what I what I, part of what I discussed too in my book is that you've got to be present uh, in in our lives, and again with social media and click click follow swipe, um, we aren't as present as we may have used been in the past. And when I had the opportunity, it was just crazy to. I was sitting at at South by Southwest, which is a huge music conference in Austin, Texas, uh, with an attorney named Scott Harrington, and we were just talking, and we we had this horrible showcase for what was called uh zero at the time the the original band and we had rick rubin clive davis everybody in their grandma list of you know a major player in the music business uh come out to see the band and everybody walked out mid-set and we were discussing it and i'm just i was having such a hard time finding a vocalist and He's like, yeah, that was, you know, you guys basically told me and the attorney, Danny Hayes, you guys have got to go underground for six months, not show your faces because everybody thinks you, you lost all your taste, you know, like the band Zero, which was the original version of Lincoln Park was awful. So we're talking, he goes, you know, I may have this guy, you know, he's in Phoenix and we were just drinking and it was happy hour and we were having quite a few drinks. I'm like, let's call him. And he's, he's like, no, we're not going to call him now, you know, it's, and I'm like, we're calling him, let's go up. We we, I pushed the guys so hard. I'm like, we went and called the guy from the hotel uh, room and got Chester on the phone and it was his birthday. And he just come, came back from like Mexico and he's drinking and he's he, just Scott Harrington puts him on the phone with me. I'm like, hey man, I got this this band. I, you got it here. And I go, I want to send you, I'm, I've had a few drinks in me. I'm like, I'm going to send you a demo tape. I want you to go and make this, you know, do your own version of, the vocals, what you think it should be to this, you know, the bed of a music track. And he's like, wait, you want me to leave my birthday party? I'm like, yeah. I go, you know, I, that's, you know, you're a sportsman. I'm like the, the classic Wayne Gretzky, you know, you, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. And I gave him that little speech and he's like, okay. I'm like, you're really going to do that. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy did it literally by the time I got home from uh, Austin, Texas, I had to demo tape uh, and it floored me. And that's part of, you know, being present, and taking a minute, I would have never discovered Chester. You know, I, you know, Scott had told me about him at this uh, at this little happy hour at the Four Seasons in, in uh, Austin, Texas. And the kid took the opportunity, Chester, to make a demo and leave his birthday party. I mean, that that just doesn't happen. It also doesn't happen generally that you find an intern who walks in your office and goes, "Hey, I'm going to have a band that's going to be huge," and somebody like myself go, "Okay, I'm going to listen." You know, and take the time to listen to an intern like that. I mean, we don't take enough time to really realize the blessings that we have enter our life because each one of us, even when we're trying to be present, there's probably a thousand things in a, a month or a year that come to us that we aren't present enough to go, hey, I'm going to actually take a moment and realize why this has entered my life. I don't want to get too profound, but that's that's how I look at my story with Lincoln Park. There were several chances where I actually took a breath and go, hmm, let's let's examine this. The book is called One Step Closer from Zero to Number One, Zero X-E-R-O. And uh, Jeff, this has been fantastic. By the way, before I let you go, I got I to gotta ask this because I heard a story that uh, uh, the radio show I listened to back in the day was Opie and Anthony, right around the time when I discovered Lincoln right. Park, because I, there was a rock station that was in town uh, that in the afternoon they had syndicated Opie and Anthony out of New York, and I'm like, okay, right. you know, this is a cool show, but I want to listen to rock music right now. I want to listen to the Lincoln Parks and the Disturbed uh, back in those days. But they told a story when they worked in Boston that there was this band that, would would you know, they would like do one of these those bar gigs and then the band would play afterward and the lead singer was like hey you guys got to listen to my demo and everything and you know they're like yeah yeah sure and they tell the story they threw the the CD out the window because they're like look we've gotten so many of these whatever it happened to be Sully Erna and Godsmack so right. so they and they were broken out of WAAF in Boston at that time so you tell the story about Macy Gray and you and Lincoln Park. Was there ever a band that you listened to that you're like, mm, 
I don't think they have the it factor. And then they go on and have the it factor. Or like, was there a band that you didn't really think highly of at the time? And then they became one of the big bands of the era. Well, I, one thing that sticks out with me is I had the killers demo and I was, when I heard the demo, it was played to me by their attorney and I was floored. I was like, this is incredible. I rushed out to see nobody had, you know, been interested in the band. I rushed out to, uh, Las Vegas and I saw them play in a, a little strip mall during the middle of the day. It was like a two o'clock in the afternoon show and it had to be like 110, 115 degree heat outside. And in this little place without any air conditioning, it was like a tiny little bar. Um, it had to be like, you know, a thousand percent humidity, whatever. And I saw them play and I, my, my whole thing with Lincoln Park was they were not great live before. You know, they were a great live band now, but it didn't bother me. And I always stuck to the, you know, situation. A band could get their chemistry together and become great live. Well, I saw this band perform and I was like, it just killed. I was so distracted by, you know, the big hair and that you're all crammed up in a little tiny stage and it sounded horrible. And I was like, oh man, this is nothing like the demo. Well, of course the killers became huge. And I walked out and I just don't like sweating. Maybe I was just drenched in sweat and I was... Uh, that 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 killed me I, I was just i i'll never forget that and i talked to the guys all the time you know and they're like oh man you know we would we would have been great to sign with you but you know they signed with rob stevenson who's just an amazing legendary and our guy but that was my one big mistake is walking out because uh i didn't walk out but it was it just affected me so much that i didn't feel it live because i was hot and i was miserable and the band was you know cramped up on a stage yeah that was a big mistake um but you know i've i've uh, doing what I do is a blessing. And just a, a note, because of this book, somebody reached out to me and she's a 23 year old LGBTQ artist um, from Virginia. And again, we're talking about listening. I, I get probably a hundred uh, submissions a day. I listened to this artist and it reminded me of a combination between Billie Eilish and Eminem. And it was, the lyrics were really deep. I got a tear in my eye and I was like, wow. And I reached out and she told me how much the book meant to her that she literally read it in 24 hours that, you know, she was, you know, laughing, crying. And I was like, I had an immediate connection with this person. So those things can happen again. And um, again, I'm just so blessed to do what I do. And I appreciate the time we've had today to discuss. And I encourage any artist to, or anybody trying to follow their dream to stick with it and uh yeah again it was a pleasure yeah it's been fantastic and i, I really appreciate the, this conversation again uh one step closer from zero to number one jeff this has been great and good luck with the book good luck with everything you've had uh you've had quite the career i mean you've done everything it seems like you're you're producing you're directing everything you're songwriting you're you've, you're a lawyer too for god's sake <laughs> Yeah, I was, I was, a, well, that's another funny story. I don't know how long this interview will go, but yeah, I was, uh, I, I got my start at UCLA acting and in communication studies. I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon, went into law school because of Harvey Levin on TMZ. Yeah. Who convinced me that I, uh, that I should be a legal reporter. So I went to law school and in law school started my band, which is how, again, a chance meeting. I had a band in law school and my fraternity brother recommended that I go and speak with his brother who worked at Geffen Records. The guy at Geffen Records named Craig Aronson thought I was a different guy in a different band and said he wanted to sign me, realized I was a different person, told me I had to get out of the office, basically. <laughs> and I learned what A&R was. I'm like, oh, this is what I want to do with my life. Um, so, yeah. And it's uh, speaking of the pandemic, what I used this year to do was um, I wrote a screenplay, finished the book. So I'm really excited about the screenplay, starting three podcasts. And one, in fact, has to do with mental health. It's with uh, a UCLA student who's 18 years old, um, big TikTok person. And just as a fluke, I had met her and was really impressed by her intelligence. And we sat down one evening and she put up Instagram live and she had like instantaneously, we were, we were just doing a discussion about uh, college kids and how to follow your dreams and that, you know, people are so lost about what to do and, you know, how to get there. And, uh, you know, kids move so quickly in this age, especially because of the internet and, and social media. And we had like 30,000 views instantaneously and kids were reaching out and people reaching out. And 
uh, asking me about career guidance and, you know, people going through depression. And so we're creating a, a podcast uh, that because I think it's really in, important and it's called uh, Late Night University. So um, that's another thing that's been a blessing out of out of all this chaos this year. So where can we where can we find you on uh, whether the Internet podcasting and where can we buy your book? Um, well, you can buy the book on Amazon, Apple, Barnes and Noble, anywhere. Um, and oh, one thing that I want to say, too, which has been a, an incredible blessing most of the fans through this book are 18 to 23, ironically, because this is the, you know, that book came out, I mean, the, the album Hybrid Theory came out when these kids were not even born, basically, you know, or just, you know, a, a twinkle in the mother's and father's eyes. Uh, so you can buy it, uh, Amazon, you know, any, any retail place. Um, my Instagram is Jeff Blue Music, Facebook is Jeff Blue Music, and Twitter, Jeff Blue Music. Uh, the podcast I'm uh, doing three different ones. One's going to be called late night university. It's just about to come out and I'm doing one called off the record with uh, another radio personality where we discuss music and uh, how discovery situations and how music came about. That's, it's excellent. And uh, you're, you're doing God's work. I, I think you're, you know, people are really connecting with that and they connected with a band like that. And if it was, again, if it wasn't for that internship with Brad, we wouldn't be talking and we wouldn't hear about a lot of this, but, uh, this is just, it's been a great conversation. And, uh, Jeff, thank you so much and good luck with everything. And, you know, you're really reaching a generation of, of kids who are unfortunately growing up too fast and you're kind of just corralling them and saying, no, 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 no. You, you, what you're feeling right now is normal right now. And let's, uh, we're, you know, we're all, you know, we've been saying it during the pandemic, but we are all in this together. So, you know, put some headphones in, vibe a little bit, whether you're listening to a podcast or going back in time and listening to a little bit of Hybrid Theory 20th anniversary. Sounds great. Thanks again, guys. Thank you, Jeff.